Well, good morning, everyone. Well, it's good to be here today. And let me start us with a word of prayer, and then I will talk about what we're going to be doing today in Joel chapter 3. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be a part of the body of Christ here at Lakeside. Lord, we thank you for uh, the faithful shepherd you've given us and Pastor Steve week after week, opening up your word and reminding us of truths that impact our lives. And we pray, Lord, that as we now have the opportunity to be in Sunday school together, thank you, Lord, that we can share prayer requests with each other and fellowship through prayer. And also, Lord, I thank you that we again get to open your word to the book of Joel. I pray as we get a glimpse today of what is the end of all things on this physical earth, um, at least in terms of judgment, that you will use it to impact our lives, not just because we know some more about what will happen in the future, Lord, but so that we see how seriously you view sin, how seriously we should take our obligation to share with the lost, and Lord, the privileges we have being in Christ in the security we have in you. So we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we continue our, our study this week, we are in Joel chapter 3, and I am more confident than ever that we are really approaching the end of our study. We spent a lot more time covering in detail the first two chapters, and so as we've gotten to chapter 3, because of the foundation we laid, as I mentioned last week, I covered eight verses last week, which is unusual for me. But because of the foundation we laid, we could go a little bit quicker, and we're going to continue to do that this morning. In fact, this morning we're going to cover nine verses, verses 9 through 17, and that will leave just four verses in the book, which comprise a unit of thought. And so next week will be the conclusion of our study in Joel. That's a little bit sooner than I expected, but I am thankful to be able to bring another book to conclusion, and then the task will be to decide where we go from here. So I would appreciate your prayers as I, I think through some things. I have some ideas in my mind of some things that I might do or that I would like to try and do. It may involve more study in the Old Testament. It may involve me going back to a New Testament book, but just pray for wisdom. But as soon as I know where we're going, I will share that with everyone. But this morning, we're going to put all our focus on Joel. I'm covering a big chunk of Scripture, but I think it's susceptible to covering a lot at one time, again, because of the foundation we've already laid. So, let me remind ourselves where we left off in a quick overview of our study, and then also a reminder of what we did last week, because last week is central to understanding what's going on this week. As we've said over and over and over again, the, the book of Joel is really a picture in the first two chapters, particularly in the first part of chapter 2, of God calling His people to repent. The nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, had engaged in sin of some sort such that God sent the locust plagues. And in chapter 2, God said, that was nothing. I'll send a foreign army against you. But even with the warning of judgment coming, God said, if you repent, you'll have peace. If you repent, things will be okay. So even though there was a warning, there was also hope mixed in. And as the book unfolds, we think probably that generation did repent, although subsequent generations turned back to their sin. 
But in the midst of this picture and this message to them, God started unfolding and he showed through Joel something that would happen in the future. His ultimate care and concern for his people in a day that is still future to us. In chapter 2, verse 27, it says, Thus you will know that I'm in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. And that really frames all of chapter 3. The end of chapter 2 is framed by that. And it's all pointing forward to that future day when God sets everything right. And there are a lot of timelines that come together and it requires us and we've referenced a lot of verses and we'll reference some more from the book of Revelation. It's really the culmination of earthly human history. It involves the great tribulation during the period that we believe in great tribulation is when the the verse in Romans that all Israel will be saved will come together. Those that remain at that time will be saved and God will bring them back to Israel and God will address those who have hurt and oppressed his people. As we began to say last week, basically the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 will happen at that time, and I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you. And as I laid it out from several commentators that put the idea in my head, last week we looked at a picture of the courtroom of God. And as we went through, it really was very easy to break down. First, we saw the parties that were subpoenaed there, the subpoenaed parties. In other words, the people that were going to be on trial. Chapter 3, verse 1, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, in other words, when Israel will never be put to shame again, when God's people will be secured, verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. We don't know the specific place. I'll hint at it today what I think it might be. I also read some verses last week of what it could be. But the idea is Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. That, that's what it's about. And God laid out the charges against his enemies. Second part of verse 2, Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. In other words, God said, the, the people that have attacked my people. They're my people. They're my inheritance. And these people have been abusing them. And it's my land. And they've been trying to steal my land. God says there's going to be judgment for that. And then he laid out some of the evidence. The evidence was presented. Verse 3, they have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. In other words, human life had no value. God's chosen people who were precious to him, the apple of his eye, were treated as nothing, like party favors. They were gambled away, rolling the dice just to get a jug of liquor to get drunk or to have a night of sexual sin. And then God, he personalized it by pointing out some of the nations around Israel that historically had oppressed them. Verse 4, Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? That was Phoenicia and Philistia that were around Israel and they had historically been enemies. They were wealthy, they were trading. And God says, are you rendering me a recompense? In other words, what are you doing to me? These are my people, this is my land. What did I do to you? Are you trying to pay me back? And God made it clear he would get them back. But again, more evidence. Since you have taken, verse 5, my silver and my gold brought my precious treasures to your temples and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks... 
in order to remove them far from their territory. And it really is the picture of the historical abuse of God's people. God called Abraham's physical descendants through Isaac, his chosen people. God showed Abraham, this is the land, east, west, north, south, this is your land. And yet the history of the Jewish people, besides their own sin, was foreign nations attempting to take the land, disperse them, scatter them. It happened thousands of years ago. It's happened in some of our lifetimes. And it continues to happen today as countries want Israel wiped off the map. So God's the prosecutor. He's summoned them to the courtroom. He's laid out the evidence. He's, he read them the charges. He laid out the evidence. And now he renders the verdict. Verse 7, Behold, I'm going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. In other words, I'm going to use my people to do justice. I'm going to... Verse 8, Also I will sell your sons and daughters in the hands of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a distant nation, for the Lord has spoken. In other words, God is basically saying, you're going to get what's coming to you, what you tried to do to them, they're going to do to you. You can almost picture that picture from the book of Esther where the bad guy builds the scaffold thinking he's going to kill the good guy and God returns everything and next thing you go, whoops. That's what type of picture is being presented here. We don't take our own revenge because vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and God is showing the picture of this is the repayment. And that sets the stage for us to go through these nine verses today because today, in essence, continuing with that theme, that courtroom motif, so to speak, the legal system at work, divine justice being executed, today we basically see the verdict carried out. That really is the heading, the verdict is carried out. And so as we begin to go through this, that's the big picture. These are the guilty parties that God's gathering together and they are guilty, and he's going to carry out the sentence. So first, there's three parts of the verdict being carried out, but the first is the condemned are brought forth. The condemned are brought forth. Beginning at verse 9, Proclaim this among the nations, prepare a war, rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, a lot is happening here, and some of the language isn't necessarily how we speak, but I think you'll see quickly what is happening so first, God is basically giving an order to someone saying, let's gather people together. Proclaim this among the nations, meaning all those nations that he's going to judge. He says, prepare a war, rouse the mighty men, let all the soldiers draw near, let them come up. In other words, God is inviting all of his enemies to come for a battle. He's telling them, look, bring your best, bring your strongest, you hate me, you hate my people, here's your opportunity. Come do your best. God has given the orders. It's not clear exactly who he's saying this to. Someone is to proclaim among the nations, and what's interesting is as you read through Scripture in different parts, 
There are times when God uses holy angels to move people into the place that he wants. And there are times that even demons with their own wicked schemes are actually playing into what God ultimately wants to happen. There's a picture that I think could be illustrative of what is going on here in 1 Kings chapter 22. And it's a vision that a prophet named Micaiah had about God trying to get Ahab, a wicked, wicked king, into a battle. 1 Kings 22, verse 19, Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven, just the angels, standing by him on his right and on his left. Verse 20, the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said this, while another said this, verse 21, Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, You are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Verse 23, Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster among you. Perhaps God would be doing something like that. But from a human perspective, the armies that are gathering don't even realize God's a part of it. They just hate Israel. They want to destroy and finally take care of business and wipe everything off the map. What we're seeing behind the scenes, that even though from a human perspective, it's just powerful nations gathering together to finally give Israel what they think they deserve, God's the one that's actually saying, Let's come over here. Let me, let me get you to where judgment's going to happen. God, as it were, is bringing them to the gallows, to the gas chamber, to the electric chair, and they don't have a clue. But there is evidence, or at least the intimation, that even in this, they don't know they're walking to their judgment. They're still defiant. But God is saying, okay, do it. He says this, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Now, these are agricultural images, and if you've read your Bible a lot, those things are relatively familiar. But it's interesting because what Joel does is reverse something that both Isaiah and Micah prophesied about. Both Isaiah and Micah prophesied about a time when God's people wouldn't need weapons anymore because they were safe. Isaiah 2, 4, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Micah says almost the exact same thing in Micah 4, 3. One day there won't be a need for weapons. You can get rid of the weapons because there's no more wars. God will have prevailed. But it's not this day. In fact, God is in essence inviting the nations, look, do your best. Make your war implements. It's almost as though God in a holy way, not a trivial way, is baiting his enemies. They want to do this. They want to fight against his people. They want to conquer his land. And God's saying, okay, bring everything you have. One commentator referenced something that I think at least creates the imagery because it's hard for us to think in terms of agriculture. Most of us, some may have, but most of us didn't grow up on farms. 
But there was a reference to the fact during World War II, every scrap of metal was valuable. There were scrap drives and metal drives because what did we need? We needed to make bullets and tanks and planes and jeeps and everything and ships. In a similar way, God's just saying to them, look, take everything you have and turn it into a weapon because this is going to be a big battle. Be ready. And again, this isn't a situation where they don't want to fight. They want to destroy God's people. They want to destroy Israel. They're looking for the fight. In fact, there's a little phrase in the verse that says, let the weak say, I am a mighty man. And what's being portrayed here is this. Even those who aren't capable warriors in these heathen wicked nations are so confident that they say, I'm ready, I'll fight. It's not quite the same thing, but if you saw the movie Captain America before he got transformed, he was a little scrawny guy. He kept trying to enlist because he wanted to go fight the Germans. But God's saying, let's go. You want this. Be prepared. Be ready. Bring all your best. Verse 11, hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Then there's this phrase, bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. In other words, as some commentators said, the picture is showing of the opposing armies being invited to come for war, and then Joel just intercedes, and, and God, bring your troops they're summoned by God's ordained plans, but in their mind, again, they think they're in charge. Hasten. Gather yourselves. Again, this is willing. This isn't a situation of somebody being forced into war. They want to fight. What they don't realize is you can't win a fight with God. His mighty ones are so much more powerful. In many respects, many people think he's talking about his holy angels. Certainly God can use regular armies, but God does things also with his angelic armies. It's interesting because we're going to read in just a second. And I mentioned before that God can use a holy angel like he did with Ahab to entice someone to come and fight. But it seems like in this battle, maybe some of that is working from a holy angel perspective, but also fallen angels. Everybody in the spirit world understands this is the one fight for everything. There's a passage in Revelation 16, and it talks about this. And it seems like it's showing what it will look like behind the scenes with some fallen angels trying to stir up the armies to come fight. And I saw verse 13 of Revelation 16. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. So this is just building and building and building, and God's saying, bring all your armies. And the demons whispering to the leaders of those armies saying, yeah, this is our chance, let's go. And God could, of course, just speak a word and wipe everything out. But he often, as I mentioned before, uses holy angels. And I can't help but think, based on some of the imagery in the book of Revelation, that perhaps what's going to be occurring during this battle is something along the lines of the picture painted by the prophet Elisha. If you remember, there was a time when the small 
collection of Israelites were surrounded by a massive army. And one of Elijah's servants was very scared, and Elisha didn't seem to be. And in 2 Kings 6, 17, it's a longer section, but I'll just read this. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. In other words, his fearful assistant who was scared to death. Elijah said, God, show him what's really going on. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. In other words, God's angelic armies were there. They didn't have anything to worry about because God was there. That's sort of the picture that's building here. We've had images on our TV screens of the Russian army as they've been invading Ukraine and doing things. But I think this goes way, way beyond that. This is more along the lines of something from World War II, or it's actually bigger than that, but of multiple countries all gathering together, and they're massing all of their armies in the land of Israel. Verse 12, Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, wherever that is, and perhaps this is the valley of Megiddo, or perhaps it's that picture I read last week where the Mount of Olives is split in two. Either way, it's in the land of Israel. That's where God's judgment, Yahweh's judgment, is about to play out. Revelation 16, 16 describes the final battle. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon, which we get the word Armageddon from. But this is an unbelievable picture. Armies from around the world massing together in this small place ready to once and for all destroy Israel. And yet they can't comprehend and they don't realize they're already defeated. They think they're coming to win. God's bringing them to the gas chamber, so to speak, the execution chamber to carry out justice. So with the picture... The condemned are brought forth, they're there. And the second point today is this, the judge orders the sentence to be carried out. Second part of verse 12 makes it clear what's actually occurring. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. From a human perspective, it's just another big war to end all wars. And you can imagine, as this is likely occurring at the end of the Great Tribulation period, Humanity has already had upheaval that we can't even comprehend. A big chunk of the world's population has already died. It's chaos. And yet this is the battle to end all battles. Verse 13 begins to carry out the judgment. Verse 13 is God speaking. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the wine press is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Again, if you read the scriptures, this is familiar imagery, but the sickle was just the tool used to cut down certain crops. And the wine press, of course, was where you take the grapes and you press them down so that the juice comes out. Very common imagery for Joel's people in Joel's day. But the idea is that God is saying, it's the judgment time, go now. 
Use the sickle and cut down the wicked. Use the winepress because it's overflowing, meaning the sin and wickedness and evil of these nations is so great. Now is the time. Start. I could go to several places in Scripture where you see this type of imagery. For example, Jesus told the parable of the wheat and tares and the angels coming and gathering but there's a portion of the book of Revelation that I think is talking about the exact same thing that makes it very, very clear. It's in Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 to 20. Beginning at verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung a sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. Verse 19, so the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. Can't comprehend that much blood. But the picture that's being painted, that was shown to the Apostle John, I believe is just more detail on the picture that was shown to the prophet Joel. At that moment, and again, I'm limited because I can only use the images I have in my own mind of our forms of capital punishment, but the hangman pulls the lever and the trap door opens. Or they hit the button and the injection's going in the arm. Or... A few years ago, you flipped the switch and the electricity starts flowing through the convicted criminal. All of that is occurring in an instant to these nations. They're guilty. And they thought that they were gathering to win a great battle. And the picture shifts very drastically because God's spoken. And you could imagine in an instant, they realize, uh-oh. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. It's a picture of terror and chaos that suddenly envelops the battlefield. Multitudes repeated, multitudes, multitudes is just showing the endless sea of humanity gathered in those foreign armies. Turbulent, unrest, as one commentator said. There's energy, there's activity. You could almost, the nervous excitement right before a battle starts, and then suddenly somebody turns out the light supernaturally, literally. You can imagine the change of tone. On the one moment, they're all excited and bragging, and they're excited to go to war to finally defeat their enemies, so they think, not realizing that, uh-oh, we're in the execution chamber. But when supernaturally everything goes dark, there has to be a dawning realization that something may be off. And then verse 16, we read this. 
the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble. Again, I don't know what that would literally be like, but God is supernaturally intervening to make it clear that he's the one doing this. And that's when the realization, I think, is fully impacting the enemies of God. What looked like just another human battle that would finally put an end to something, suddenly the equation has changed and God intervenes. Supernaturally, the lights go out. In some way, he thunders and roars and the earth is shaking And I got to believe at that moment they realize we're done. I've read a lot about a lot of different battles. I've talked about that with some of you, but I've read a lot about World War II. And there was a realization that slowly sank in for some of the German generals that we've lost. Hitler was a, I'm convinced, demonically influenced, wicked, evil man who was out of his mind at the end from drugs and I think being given over to a depraved mind. But some of the generals could still think clearly and they realize we're in trouble. It's over. All of that is going to happen to the enemies of God in an instant. From one minute thinking they're triumph and they're superstars and even their weak soldiers think we're part of the winners, they lose in an instant. And that's the last war that will ever be fought. God will have won. The verdict will have been carried out. And that brings to our third and final point. It's this, the victims are no longer at risk. The victims are no longer at risk. The end of verse 16, it says this, But the Lord is a refuge for His people, and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Verse 17. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. One of the things that happens in America is for a lot of crimes, eventually, the guilty are let free. And quite often at parole hearings or at other hearings, the victims of the crime are saying, please don't. Why? Because they're scared to death. If that person's free, it could happen again. None of that with God's people. They'll never be put to shame because the Lord, even in the midst of this cataclysmic battle, it's as though he put a shield around his people. They're safe. They'll be unharmed. He's a refuge for his people a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Probably from an earthly perspective, if you looked at the battlefield, they were outgunned, they were outmanned, they were surrounded, it all looked hopeless, and yet the entire time they couldn't have been in any safer place because God was protecting them. And God just reminded them, you'll know that it's me. You'll know that I'm the Lord your God. I'm dwelling on my holy mountain. He said, so Jerusalem will be holy. Strangers will pass through it no more. There won't be any more foreign invading armies wandering through. There won't be any more Muslim mosques 
and holy sites for Muslims on top in Jerusalem. It was one of the thrills of my life to be with several of you on one of Pastor Steve's trips to Israel. And one thing struck me, and I enjoyed things when Steve was talk, preaching this morning about fish and stuff. You go, hi, I was on the Sea of Galilee. We got to ride on a boat and all those things. But one of the things that was surprising to me, I was looking forward to going to Jerusalem. Who wouldn't? I mean, Jesus was there. The temple was there. Human history was going to be centered there. I remember we got to see an excavation they think was one of the palaces of King David. It's incredible. You're walking in the footsteps of history. And you know, you don't know which rock, but Jesus stepped on some of the same rocks. But I've said, and nothing's changed my views, it's the darkest place spiritually I've ever been in my life. And I've been in the villages in Africa where everybody is practicing voodoo. And those places are dark, but it's nothing like Jerusalem. Why? Because every aberrant false religion is represented there. And you go, I was looking at a picture for a different reason this morning of when I was able to stand because our group was able to go up on the Temple Mount and you see the Dome of the Rock and you see the Alaska Mosque and you realize this was supposed to be God's holy place and it's being blasphemed every single day. And then you walk around and the Catholic Church has a place for everything except that it's not just the Catholic Church. All these other Orthodox churches and there's cults and everything is there. And I'm convinced, because it's consistent with Scripture, it, it's demonically influenced everywhere. And even the special people of God, the Jews, and again, I was talking to someone and I was looking at pictures this morning, they're lost. Because they're worshiping at the Western Wall, but they're not worshiping the Messiah. What Joel's saying is all that's over. One day, God will be in his rightful place and there won't be any false religions. There won't be any competing anything. It'll be magnifying the Lord and him alone. Jerusalem will be holy and foreign enemies will not wander through ever again. I think for us, we won't physically be there because I believe we'll be raptured before that all occurs. But I can't imagine what that would be like. But in Revelation chapter 19, as is often the case, there's a picture of the rejoicing of the triumph. And so I'll close with that picture. Revelation 19, beginning at verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. Verse 5, and a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and great. 
Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we would rejoice if today was the day that Christ came and took his church. Lord, the world we live in is upside down. As Pastor Steve mentioned so clearly, and we see with our own eyes, evil is called good and good is called evil, and the world is going from bad to worse. And Lord, we've been given a glimpse today of something that will happen in the future where you execute judgment on your enemies. Lord, it's not the only judgment. Every single sinner will give an account to you if they don't know Christ. But Lord, this picture of the cataclysmic final battle reminds us that you are the sovereign God, that our God, the Almighty, reigns. Lord, help us believe that even if we don't see it with our eyes. Lord, as we look around, at times it does seem like evil's winning, but we know it isn't. Lord, it seems like Satan has all the cards in his hand, and Lord, we know that's not true, but if we're not careful, we walk by sight, not by faith, and we despair. So I pray, Lord, that this picture of the ultimate judgment, even though it will happen outside of our time on this earth, pray that it will remind us that you are on your throne even today, that even as people run around proclaiming falsehood as truth and demonic ideas are treated as though they're holy, we pray that we wouldn't despair, that we wouldn't panic, but that we would realize our God, the Almighty, reigns. Lord, I also pray that it would remind us that there are countless lost people that still need to hear the gospel. Lord, let us be instruments of taking the gospel to others, both in our personal evangelism as you give us opportunity, but also in supporting the missionaries of Lakeside and the evangelistic efforts and the outreach. Lord, we pray that as long as you tarry, you will use us to advance your kingdom here on earth. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.